baklavas are Jewish, aren't they? Um, no, I, well, it's a Turkish sweet, isn't it? You think of babka? I might have been thinking of kebabka. Kebabka is a, a delicious pastry filled with Ke- meat and Nutella. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a kebab rolled in coconut. <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> isn't it? A drizzle of maple syrup on top. Imagine a bounty bar, but with a chipolata running through it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, wonderful. Oh, lovely. Lovely. That's fusion food, isn't it? Mmm, delicious. Do not touch your microphone. I'm not going to touch my microphone. No swinging around my head today. Audience, the reason we're a week late is because uh, there was an issue with Tom's microphone. It's now solved. We're back in the room. Hello and welcome to That Was Genius, the little history podcast in which Tom... Hello. Sounding beautiful and not at all recording out of his laptop microphone today, so that it sounds like we're um, doing this we're from phone We're only going to find boxes. out later. Yeah, it you... does say it's using the correct microphone. Excellent. But, um, it did also do that two weeks ago it, and it came did. out very tinny. It sounds about right. It doesn't sound it like we're talking... It sounded like I was in an old pencil case, didn't I? It, it sounded very much like I called a premium rate sex chat line and just got history thrown back in my face <laughs> for £3 a minute. It was of a similar call what? quality. <laughs> What would you like? Roman Republic. <laughs> Press two, if you want. Pope Pius III. <laughs> Press three, if you want the American Civil War. Pilfs. Patricians I'd like to fuck. <laughs> Pliny the Elder. <laughs> so Tom over there and Sam over here discuss history stories on a theme each week. We decide the theme three or four weeks in advance. Fuck knows. It's been a minefield. Uh, but everything else that happens, including technical difficulties, is a surprise. And what is our topic this week, Tom? Feats of survival. It is indeed feats of survival. Ooh, how do you find this one? I can't remember, Sam. It was, it was a, a very long, time, long ago. time ago, yes. Yeah, I haven't even reread my notes. So oh, I'm sweet. just going to wing it tonight. No, only joking. As a topic, I, I think this is a gold mine. I think that's yes, well known. Absolutely, yeah. It's a gold mine uh, because we've mined it so many times. I was spoilt for choice. Everywhere you look in history, there are fun stories of men going on adventures into the unknown. And I say the unknown, what I really mean is the unknown to them. Yes. If these people had cared to ask the locals, it'd be very they much would have found known. <laughs> Yeah, they would have found out everything very quickly. Yes. And without all the suffering, cannibalism and death. Yes, they should have just followed the road signs or learnt enough of the rudimentary local language to be able to follow the road signs. Or, ju- or just copied their accents and said things slower. <laughs> Where is the fish? Where can I get you some meteo? <laughs> God, I just love the idea of a Victorian explorer going slowly mad as he travels across Africa, slowly being chased by the Duolingo owl after skipping his Swahili lessons for six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The only thing that pressed us on was the fear of what would happen if the owl caught us. <laughs> Talking of colonial explorers, a leopard can't really change its spots, can it? So, um, being, I don't know how I'm, to, I'm trying to weave this back onto the notes that I wrote <laughs> two weeks ago. And I'm failing. So it's my turn to go first, isn't it? It is your turn to go first. Whereabouts was I in my notes? The beginning. I committed myself early on to finding a good example of snooty British colonial adventurers in the 19th century getting lost in Africa. Gosh, I bet that was difficult. (laughs) And having a torrid time. Yes. And I also wanted a strong undercurrent of Victorian racism. Well, Tom, you've already got one. (laughs) Why search for what you have, (laughs) what you're blessed with? (laughs) No. 
quite the opposite, Sam. I treat everyone fairly. I decide <laughs> you everyone, hate them all. <laughs> everyone can have the piss taken out of them equally. Why Africa? Well, because we've already had plenty of examples of Europeans making twats of themselves in Australia and North America. We so still I thought, do. I thought we <laughs> just decided doing, to stay there. <laughs> I thought I would delve into Africa, so I'm going to talk about Sir Henry Morton Stanley's search for David Livingstone in 1871. Ooh. Ooh. Ah, Yee, so who was Henry? <laughs> the ghost of Northerner past. <laughs> so who was Henry Morton Stanley? Let's start there. It sounds like an investment banking company, but it was actually a Welshman. He was, Stanley, born in Wales <laughs> in 1841. Just to make things more confusing, his name was actually 18 John Rowland. 1841. 1814-11-12. 1814-1 as opposed to 1814-2 when they decided the first one was just not going right, so they scrapped it, started recording again. <laughs> <laughs> Two weeks later. Two weeks yeah. later. No, no, Stanley was born in Wales in 1841. Oh, fuck me. 1840. Let me put my teeth in. 1841. Back then, his name was John Rowlands, and he doesn't actually fit the British colonial explorer stereotype, I'm afraid, although he was arrogant, harsh, difficult to work with, and had a moustache. His upbringing is rather sad. Not that that was particularly unusual in the mid-19th century, or in Wales. He was an illegitimate <laughs> son who wasn't really loved by his mother and who was reluctantly brought up by his relatives. He soon found himself at a workhouse. If listeners don't know what a workhouse is, think Charles Dickens, Oliver Twist. <laughs> Boy, what have I got here written in my notes? Moose! <laughs> Never before has a boy asked for moose. He only served <laughs> angel delight. What? Anyway... <laughs> Workhouses were basically... Were you, were you hungry or high when you were writing this? Not quite sure. I might have been in Canada, by the looks of it. <laughs> oh, it's it's moose rather than moose. As a moose... Well, it could be both, can't it? As opposed to, you know, Angel Delight or Petit Falou. Angel Delight's not a yoghurt. Petit Falou's a yoghurt, isn't it? You can't mix your Angel Delight with yoghurt. I know. Petit... Or with elk, for that matter. Where the fuck are we going with this? Workhouses were basically a solution to mass poverty. The poor were made to work for their food and shelter in rather unpleasant conditions. And children were also given a modest education. At the age of 15, Stanley escaped his workhouse and in doing so, the horrible relatives he had depended on all his childhood. And he fled to Liverpool where he sailed to New Orleans. Wow. There are no cats in America and the streets are paved with cheese. <laughs> what? Can you remember that from Five or Goes West? No, not Five or Goes West. Uh, oh God! An, an American store, an American tale. With yes. Five God, that's I haven't seen that yeah. since I was about five. I know. I hadn't heard the song for a long time. It just came to me. Only an American cheese, incidentally, can be likened to a paving slab. <laughs> Once in America, Rowlands was kind of adopted by a chap called Henry Morton Stanley. This merchant was the first man who had ever shown Stanley slash Rowlands any kindness. However, Stanley soon died. Why? Because this is the 19th century and life was shit. Rowlands then adopted Stanley's name, a clear indication of how much Rowlands respected this merchant, and then had lots of adventures in the USA as a soldier during the Civil War, a Ooh. sailor in the US Navy, and a, finally a journalist. Nice. Oh, he lived a, bit like of a, quite... lived a bit of life, didn't he? He was. I think he was a very strong personality. Yeah. To survive that upbringing, I think you would have to have a strong personality. Yeah, no, no stranger to hardship. 
1869, the New York Herald... God, living in America, Jesus. (laughs) Choose the workhouse. In 1869... Cheaper health care. I want to get on a boat to Liverpool. (laughs) In 18... That's where everyone was going at this time. In 1869, the New York Herald said to Stanley... Hey, Stanley, I've got a scoop. I want you to find a living stoop. <laughs> was, the, was the New York Herald having a stroke? He's gone missing in the middle of Africa. I can smell toast. <laughs> and the left people, side of my face is drooping. People are going to go mad for this story. It's going to have everything. Cannibalism, death, disease, adventure, more cannibalism, more death. If you can find some tits and ass, that will be the icing on the donut. Mm, hey, Brad over there, give me a donut, will you, honey? Go get him, Stanley. Nice. Beautiful monologue. (laughs) Now it's time to explain who David Livingstone was. Let's leave Stanley for a moment. David Livingstone had a moustache. I think that's enough for now. Back to Stanley. No, just joking. I think we need more than that. Livingstone was born in Scotland in 1813 and, like Stanley, did not have a privileged upbringing, although he did at least have a loving family. My Encyclopedia Britannica describes his early life as follows... Livingstone grew up in a distinctly Scottish family environment of personal piety, poverty, hard work, zeal for education and a sense of mission. And a big drawful of porridge. (laughs) And an intuitive ability to use a deep fat fry. And a (laughs) whip-like headbutt. (laughs) Of that. (laughs) Beautiful. We're on a bit of a streak at the moment, aren't we, with porridge references. And porridge references, Bruce Forsyth impressions. And uh, I think there's maybe one or two others uh, repeatedly cropping up. Um, Livingston had six siblings and they lived with their parents in one room in Clyde. Clyde Muldoon? No, the town of Clyde. <laughs> if you want to understand these references, you're just going to have to go back to the to our, to our back catalogue and Sharpish. Yes. Was that was that a seamless and subtle reference to our previous work? That was a beautiful marketing... I was going to say marketing <laughs> faux pas. <laughs> <laughs> From a young age, Livingston worked in a cotton mill. Now, get this, in his spare time, he studied Latin, Greek, theology, and medicine. Oh, wow. Hey, you fucking show off. <laughs> so he studied medicine and then decided he'd make his life difficult by wasting his time three different ways. What? <laughs> Why the fuck would I not just concentrate on the one thing that could possibly earn me a living? Why, well, yeah. Just, yeah, I suppose so. That's, that's a good point, actually. I think it was a very religious family. So that's probably where the theology comes in. But I think you're right with regards to the Latin and the Greek. That just... Mm, who knows? Maybe yeah. all his textbooks were still in Latin. Possibly. Or he just fancied a really bit of Plutarch. <laughs> could, only, could only afford the really old textbooks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Still reading Galen. Through church, he became a missionary. And at the age of 25, he headed off to South Africa to spread the word. Halitosis, praise the Lord. My breath smells like a Glaswegian whore's undercarriage. <laughs> Livingston soon developed a reputation for being a very disciplined, hard-working and successful missionary. In fairness to Livingston, and I was hoping to find out he was a proselytising twat, he was a vocal critic of both the Boers and the Portuguese, who had footholds in the south of the continent, because of, and, and he disliked them because of their derogatory attitude to the Africans. Livingston was Weirdly, also, on the flip side, absolutely bloody loved the Belgian Congo. <laughs> Thought Leopold was spot on. <laughs> We're going to... Well, you've actually jumped quite far ahead here, Sam. Oh, sorry. I apologise. that thought, and that's connected to Stanley. Livingstone was also strongly opposed to slavery, and a huge amount of his time was devoted to trying to end it, even though it was in a sort of Victorian uh, paternal way. 
By the 1840s, most European powers had made significant progress towards abolishing slavery, but there was still a lot of work to be done. Not only were some of the European colonial powers still at it in Africa, but the Arabs in the north and the northeast of the continent had well-established slave trades, and both the European and Arab slave networks were based on those of the African kingdoms, which were still in operation. So basically, if you were a normal African just minding your own business, everyone wanted a piece of you. Yeah. Life was a bit shit. Life was really not very nice. In 1844, Livingston was mauled by a lion. By 1850, he had developed terrible hemorrhoids that possibly ended up killing him. <laughs> which, which was worse. <laughs> <laughs> Those are just two of the most pertinent points from, yes. his, from his story. A lion um, mauled his hemorrhoids. <laughs> <laughs> and strangely enough, sorted them out. Yeah, absolutely. It was a sterile line, so there weren't any infections. <laughs> One thing I've learned... It was just like it, a cat. It was just like rolled onto its tummy and was just batting at them. <laughs> <laughs> Bouncing them back and forth like beach balls. Yeah. <laughs> Until one of them popped off and rolled oh, across dear. the savannah. <laughs> I, if there's one thing I've learned in this podcast, so there's probably only three things I have actually learned. Yes, it's, it's limited, frankly. <laughs> is how prevalent hemorrhoids have been through human history. Yes. Uh, and probably, by extension, how little fibre <laughs> humans have eaten for much of history. <laughs> anyway, I'm... P- by 18... Uh, I'll give you a little bit of a gap to make that easy to edit. By 1850, he was also very well respected. You gift me. (laughs) Had travelled further into Central Africa than any other European, or so the claim goes, and had a good working relationship with the Royal Geographical Society in London. In 1855, after an epic journey into Central Africa, then to the East Coast and then to the West Coast, Livingstone discovered and named Victoria Falls. Now... I can't go into too much detail about his further expeditions, although they are fascinating and largely with the objective of discovering ways to spread commerce and Christianity, which it was hoped, in his mind, would lead to the end of slavery. As opposed to Christianity and chlamydia, like most good Victorian explorers. <laughs> doing, the, doing the Lord's work. Oh, what? Yeah. Or anyone who works for Oxfam. <laughs> wow. Was it Oxfam that were caught up in all these controversies a couple of years there's, ago? There's been a few. I don't know if it yeah. was Oxfam. I know the American Red Cross has a particularly ropey, ropey reputation internationally. Yeah. For, for listeners who don't know, I think there have been a number of controversies around aid workers having sort of networks of prostitutes that they use, which yeah, prob- I, I would go. I would suggest is probably unethical. Yeah. And hypocritical. Although Tom, what's wonderful is that for only three, four, or five pounds a month, you can you fund you can off. fund you can fund a prostitute for an aid worker. Oh God! Many of these expeditions <laughs> were terrible. Yeah, what, terrible. What were we behavior. saying about the average African? Uh, just for the last couple of hundred years, having really a lot of people preying on them. Many of these expeditions were badly led by Livingston and the parties ended up falling apart. In 1866, one of these expeditions to find the source of the Nile ended with disagreement, arguing and the party disbanding. Rumour spread that Livingston had been killed by natives, but he was actually pressing on, exploring parts of Africa with anyone he bumped into who would help him, including Arab traders. By 1871, Uh. nobody knew where Livingston was or whether he was alive, and there was a buzz around his story in the papers of Britain and USA. Cue Henry Morgan Stanley. (coughs) Anyway. In 1866, Stanley. I thought you were going to do that in a kind of Welsh accent. (laughs) If you. (laughs) Or like in a Tom Jones (laughs) styley. 
He's got style, he's got grace. <laughs> he's got a puffy face. He's a Welshman in Africa. <laughs> he is tanned, he is burnt. <laughs> he uh, wears a rugby shirt. He's a Welshman in Africa. <laughs> Whoa, a Welshman. <laughs> ah, Raph, he's a Welshman. <laughs> Searching for mines, he's a Welshman. <laughs> Papa Deeping, he's a Welshman. <laughs> anyway, in 1866, Stanley left the USA to find Livingston, but first to Egypt to see the opening of the Suez Canal. Oh. There was... There was other business to see too, too, and it wasn't until 1871 that Stanley reached Zanzibar, an island on the coast of modern-day Tanzania. Zanzibar. Crikey, I do hope he was getting refunded by the New York Herald for his expenses, because this sounds like one hell of a business trip. It's already lasted five years. For the better part of a year, Stanley led an expedition inland. Eventually, in November 1871, Stanley found Livingstone in a place called Ujiji, which is on the banks of Lake Tanganyika near Burundi, but still in modern-day Tanzania. Yes. In, in fact, Stanley gave the lake its name, Tanganyika, which means something like uh, rolling mist or, or something like that. Oh, nice. In one of the native languages. A few That's very good not to name it after Queen Victoria or... Prince Prince Albert. Or Prince Albert or his yeah, mum. Or Tom Jones. Yeah, or him or Tom Jones, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. New Cardiff. <laughs> and Pons- new Abbotsford Swift. Pontypridd. <laughs> yeah. A few geography facts here. It's basically the second largest freshwater lake in the world, second only to Lake Baikal in Siberia. As the story goes, Stanley saw Livingstone and casually said, despite all the effort and suffering that had gone into finding him, Dr Livingstone, I presume. Did he actually say that, though? Well, I don't know. I think it was in potentially in his memoirs. He wrote quite a lot. In fact, both of them wrote quite a lot. Could have been in one of his articles, but... It's a famous phrase that comes very much from, you know, the moment. It's not something that was made up 50 or 60 years later. Mm. It's, it's not a retrospective thing. Okay. The two of them, it's very British stiff upper lip, isn't it? Mm. How long was he out there for? Well, so when he found him in November and he left in... I think it was a better part of a year. I think he was doing other things at the time. He was There were lots of... There was lots of interest in things like finding the source of the Nile or finding another really big lake. There were, and so Stanley not only was there to find Dr Livingstone, but he was also there to have a bit of an explore and see if he could you know, get some firsts. You know, first person. Mm. What was the other thing? There was some, um, there was a mountain, there was sort of semi-mythical mountain ranges as well that people were sort of looking to find. Anyway, the two of them joined hands and went for a few adventures together in Central Africa. A year later, Stanley returned to Zanzibar, leaving Livingston to carry on his work. He then died in 1873. His heart, interestingly, was buried in Africa and the rest of his body in Westminster Abbey. It must have been uh. a pretty stinky journey home because that was a long way it was hard enough to go and find him let alone to carry his body back yes let alone to dissect him <laughs> somewhere <laughs> somewhere in the savannah could have been that lion again the sterile lion <laughs> yes the lion surgeon <clears throat> simba everything within the dotted lines is to be amputated <laughs> i killed mufasa because i didn't use enough <laughs> <laughs> enough gauze. On the whole, uh, Livingston seemed to 
uh, seem to have been someone with good intentions, a genuine desire to improve the life of Africans, but poor leadership skills, and some of the Victorian prejudices and paternal condescension that you'd expect from a Victorian in Africa. Under scrutiny, though, he comes out quite well, disappointingly so, certainly compared to other Britons in Africa at the time. Certainly if you go 100 years before that. (laughs) Yes. Um, Stanley, on the other hand, seems a bit more questionable. It would be wrong of me to make a confidence summary of his personality because I haven't researched him enough and the evidence is often very contradictory. There's also a lot of stuff to draw on, so you could write a very complicated biography of Stanley. We talked about his upbringing earlier. I suspect to survive this upbringing, as we mentioned, he must have developed a very hard and selfish personality. His career as a journalist and explorer continued until around 1890 to 1900 when he sort of retired. Wow, so how long? So when did he start? Sorry, he was quite quite a long career. He was quite a lot younger than Dr. Livingston. Um, I think he was born in 18. (laughs) Dr. Livingston, I presume. With his socks, his socks pulled up and a little pair of shorts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> little, little, little school satchel. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's been an awfully long way to find you, sir. But I've, I brought some more teasers with me, <laughs> yeah. and they've kept me going. <laughs> I've had to fend off five lions with my little catapult. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, where I was, I was talking about Stanley, wasn't I? I wish I had some more details on uh, some of his adventures after leaving Livingston, but there, there are so many and they're so well documented, I couldn't possibly squeeze them all into one episode. Maybe I will return at some point in the future. But he did develop a reputation for being a very harsh, violent, arrogant, self-righteous, boastful and intolerant leader. There are many accounts from people who knew him that praise him, others that make him sound like a monster. So it's all quite contradictory. Perhaps his tough side was necessary for helping him to complete his expeditions. After all, leadership isn't a popularity contest, unless it's democracy. (laughs) Yes. Maybe Livingston would have been a more successful explorer if he had been a stronger and harder lever, a lever, leader like Stanley. Anyway, a final note, Stanley also played a vital role in creating the Congo Free State for King Leopold II of Belgium. Oh. Um, yeah, absolutely. Oh. <laughs> uh, they were pretty oh. much on first-name terms. And now you can't blame Stanley for what Leopold subsequently did, but it is an association that doesn't look very good on paper. And I'd be inclined to conclude that Stanley was a strong leader, but a bit of a tosser, whilst Livingston was a weak leader, but probably a decent guy. That goes for quite a lot of leadership, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think you're probably right. But the association with the Congo Free State is is very interesting. I would like to look into the Congo Free State in more detail, because the way King Leopold II created that state is quite complex, isn't it? It is. And for anyone who doesn't know about the Congo Free State, King Leopold II of Belgium essentially owned the Congo, not as like a colony, not as a country of which he was king. It was his private estate and property, and he took personal ownership of all the people within it who weren't citizens, they were property. And he exacted, or his his agents exacted, absolutely horrendous corporal and capital punishments on uh, any workers who, for example, didn't meet their rubber quota. And people were essentially mass-starved to death for the personal profit of Leopold II, King of Belgium. (laughs) It's I I briefly looked through the history of the Congo Free State and it is it is very complicated how King Leopold managed to find himself in this position where he owned the the Congo Free State. But because it, it was at a time it's not when that complicated, he was a cunt. No, no. But the, the thing is, he, he, <laughs> there's he no like record to... scratch moment. 
Hi, I'm King Leopold. You're probably asking how I got here. <laughs> That's a funny story. <laughs> it was how he managed to persuade the other European powers to let him have it. I think that's what's... He was hiding... I think he hid his his actual motives. What he ended up doing, he, he didn't lay that out at the start and say, this is what I'm going to do with the Congo Free State. But he managed to persuade other European superpowers to let him take that land. He sort of negotiated it. And this was also at a time when a lot of the European powers were starting to question how they'd been behaving towards Africans. Hmm. So, yeah, p- people's attitudes were becoming a little bit more developed, a little bit more modern. It was, it was taking time, but it, they were on the road to becoming more modern. And then King Leopold managed to managed to wangle this Congo Free State. But, but the end result isn't complicated. Like you say, he was, he was a cock. Um, <laughs> yes. it, it really was very unpleasant. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, but there, you, there, yes, that's uh, that's Livingston and Stanley, which is famous largely for the the phrase "Doctor Livingston," I presume, which I'd heard of before, but I didn't I didn't know where it came from. Yes, which is a shame because it's probably one of the lesser less interesting parts of his life, the uh, the finding of Livingston. Oh, I mean, well, it's still well, very sorry, interesting. I focused on it then. Still, still very interesting. But Fuck given you. That he, <laughs> given that he founded the Congo Free State, fled to America, became a celebrated war hero. Like it's still very interesting, but it was it was one small part of the large and for both fascinating of fabric of his life. For, for both, both of them, yes. yeah. Very well. Quite often with these stories of survival from this period, what's really good is because from our perspective, from our research perspective, is you can find one survival's one survivor's story, and uh, you can read their diary, and it's really easy to do for your research. The problem with this is you're from the research perspective. There's lots of stuff you could go into. You, you could you could write you know five five volume series uh, on this topic. There's enough there's enough documentary evidence. Yeah, yeah. As That's why I went uh, yeah. I went for the sort of the sort of overview, really. Oh, interesting though, Tom. Very interesting. Thank you, Mister Berry. I presume. That's a pleasure. Well, I'm not just doing feats of survival today, Tom. Oh no, I'm doing thousands of feats of survival. Is it a caterpillar? Ah, <laughs> it's a millipede. <laughs> now I'm doing I'm doing quite literally surviving from thousands of feet. Um, ah, with a brief history of space ballooning and space skydiving. Nice. So unless you're listening to this at the age of eight or nine, in which case, great parenting. And I do know that because I've emailed before, <laughs> we've got a couple of listeners who share this with their kids. What does felching mean? <laughs> Can I have a show of a dib-dab? You'll probably remember that in 2012, daredevil Felix Baumgartner jumped from a balloon at the edge of space, quote-unquote, 128,000 feet or 39 kilometres above the Earth, free-falling for several minutes before deploying his parachute and descending safely to the ground. Then in 2014, no one remembers a former Google exec doing exactly the same thing and buying his way to a world record with a jump from almost 136,000 feet. Who was that then? What was his name? I decided not to write his name because I didn't want to give him the The credit. (laughs) The credit for basically buying his way into the record. Eustace, something Eustace. (laughs) Google Eustace. Incredibly useless. Yes, Eustace. Eustace bastard. (laughs) Alan, Alan Eustace. Alan useless. Yeah, there you go, Alan Eustace. So, um. Whilst these are often labelled as space skydives, they absolutely aren't. 
they aren't even dives from the edge of space, which is what they're also often labelled as, which is usually considered to begin at a point called the Kármán line, which is 100 kilometres above water level. So these guys are not even skydiving from halfway to space. They're just crap, really, aren't they? They are just shit. But the history of these jumps is still bloody interesting and bloody dangerous, and there have been some incredible feats of survival and a couple of people who really weren't so lucky. The OG, <laughs> the original gangster high-altitude balloonists, were a pair of Swiss twins called Auguste and Jean-Félix Picard, Ooh. who separately, but in a spirit of friendly competition, absolutely revolutionised high-altitude flight in the 1930s. They were also the inspiration for uh, Captain Jean-Luc Picard of Star Trek fame. I thought you were going to make some Star Trek jokes, so I just... No I joke kept... necessary. Oh, OK. I kept yeah, my mouth shut. They were... Genuinely uh, the inspiration for him. So of the two, Jean was more of an inventor. He designed some actually really impressive and, and useful, if slightly niche, inventions, such as non-misting windscreens, oxygen generators, and explosive bolts. He built the first ultralight hot air balloon out of cellophane cling film and was celebrated worldwide for his ingenuity. He did do some ballooning himself, though not hugely successfully, he was one of the first men to experiment with tying loads of small balloons together. 97 of them, in fact, in his, uh, in his biggest record. In his and clown then, outfit. <laughs> yeah, whilst, whilst riding a tiny car. Encouraging people to smell the flower on his chest. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, from a great height. <laughs> he was the first person to join the Mile Pie Club. Hit someone in the face with a custard tart from <laughs> great height. So yes, he tied together 97 balloons and controlled his height by shooting them. Why would you? Why I mean, you've gone to the effort of doing 97. Why wouldn't you go for 99? Because Nina Hagen had already shotgunned that. <laughs> it's already been copyrighted. Yeah. I, I guess maybe two or three of them burst. Well, I'm, sure he would, I'm sure he would have gone for the 100. There's no reason why you go for 97, is there? So, yes, he would shoot them or blow them up with TNT to control his height. Although he did get a bit enthusiastic with the explosives <laughs> on one occasion. and why burned would you down his a own... dart or, or a pointy <laughs> stick? Uh, well, and that would be the sensible way out. <laughs> I think he wanted to... No, no. I was going to say, I think he wanted to make, <laughs> make it safer in a more industrial process, but he has a pointy stick works just so, as well um, as a pistol. Imagining a man holding on to 97 balloon strings, floating up in the sky. <laughs> All he needs in his other hand is a stick, a pokey stick. But instead, yes. instead he's, he's flailing a revolver of... <laughs> and, a, and a big plunger a marked barrel. Acme. <laughs> <laughs> he's throwing up TNT in the air. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you have a point. <laughs> He was, he was a, a mad inventor, a mad inventor. But on one occasion, he um, burned down his own prototype balloon as uh, flaming embers showered down on him from a particularly over-enthusiastic TNT detonation. In many ways, he was a genius. In many others, he was an idiot. And he thought that by 1952, with an investment of up to £250,000 maximum, uh, man would be hot air ballooning from, the Earth, from Earth to Mars. <laughs> well, one's got a dream big. Uh, you you certainly do. Reach um, for the moon and you might just grab a handful of stars. Oh. Doesn't work like that. They're, <laughs> the stars are further away, you yeah, twat. They're very far away. When did you leave school, Dave, you absolute fucking moron? <laughs> <laughs> and also, pull down that live, love, laugh sign. <laughs> I've You're noticed, 45 and single. <laughs> I've noticed that if you go around someone's house 
there's a direct mm-hmm. correlation between the number of motivational and sort of happiness quotes on yes. canvas around the and house the, and the unhappiness <laughs> yes it's definitely an, it's an inverse correlation yes yeah. absolutely they're usually arguing a lot and throttling each other yeah <laughs> what you want is to go into a house and see barely tolerant and on the ragged edge printed in beautiful uh, handwriting on the wall yeah beautiful italics That's a couple who really love each other <laughs> against the backdrop of a lake a serene lake at sunset <laughs> yeah with I couldn't give a shit <laughs> written on it <laughs> there's a couple who are staying together to the bitter end <laughs> yep bitter being the operative word go fuck yourself <laughs> written <laughs> in large <laughs> on a giant balloon <laughs> <laughs> Pop out of a box. Right, anyway, if Jean was the, if Jean was the nutty professor, Auguste, who looks exactly like you'd expect a mad professor to, was the daredevil. He dedicated his life to studying cosmic rays and decided the best way to do that was to get up there. Don't wait for the rays to come I'm to you. Space Go Ray to the Wilkins. rays like Steve Irwin. <laughs> I'm just imagining a load of cosmic rays bobbing around in their spacesuits. Space <laughs> Ground control to Ray Winston. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck you off, David Bowie. (laughs) Yeah, he dedicated his life to to getting up into the air to take a bloody good look at cosmic rays. And to that end, he designed a a special pressure vessel so that he could soar into the stratosphere, completing a number of flights in the early 1930s and gradually getting higher and higher until on his 27th flight... Bearing in mind this was the 1930s, pre-World War II, he set a record of 23 kilometres, 75,000 feet high, which is higher than a U-2 spy plane flies today. At which point he's believed to be the <laughs> first person... Why does Bono need spy planes? Ah, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get it. It's not for Bono, it's for the edge. <laughs> the edge of, of space. space. Uh, this was still using balloons, he was getting this, this high. This was using balloons. This was, this was basically a, a kind of a pill-shaped capsule underneath a giant balloon yes right he got to 75,000 feet and it is believed that at this point he's the first person to have ever seen the curvature of the earth so there you go what load of bollocks I think it's true you can see see the curvature from anywhere uh, yeah but to properly be able to see the the, planet stretching away on the side (laughs) (laughs) oh no you're not properly seeing the curvature when you're looking off onto the horizon off your boat that's not proper (laughs) You need to be at least 70,000 feet high. Well, I think when you can start to see countries disappearing around the edge of the curve... I can see the Isle of Wight. Fine. You are the first person to ever see the curve. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. Shortly after this, he realised that his inventions would also work really well underwater. Having reached the top of the sky, he thought, oh, you know, this would also work underwater. So he switched <laughs> to trying to reach the deepest parts of the Earth in his yellow submarine. And the land I was born. No, no, I'm just, I'm just scrapping that. So he tries to, try to reach the deepest parts of the Earth. Obviously not the balloon. That would not work very well underwater. That's what I was thinking. If, I, very if I turn my balloon upside down, <laughs> if I stand on it'll my clearly head. just climb to the bottom of the sea. <laughs> Eventually, I'll reach Australia, at which point I'll just be going up again. <laughs> so after World War II, as the space race hotted up, the US and USSR both began their own research into high-altitude ballooning, and more often than not, how to safely fall out of one. There were a couple of reasons for this. I, going I mean, clo- if you're falling out of a balloon, I think you're doing it wrong. You should attach yourself to the balloon, not... Put yourself in the balloon and blow it up. 
don't you think? Right. Okay. So yes. You just okay. have a very high pitched Fall- voice, wouldn't you, for a long falling time? Falling out of the falling out of the gone. Well, I don't think that's helium, not hydrogen. <laughs> <laughs> It's what they're being filled with. But also, okay, I see, yes. Falling out of the gondola. <laughs> That's more like it. Thank you. I think these Good. details need to be accurate. Good. <laughs> Gotta maintain standards I, in this podcast. I stand corrected. <laughs> there were several reasons <laughs> for jumping out of a gondola at great height. Getting up close to space was a really good way of seeing how people survived in space. Falling back down again was very good practice for when things fucked up in space. <laughs> As well as an excellent way to test pressure shoots, uh, pressure, pressure, as well as an excellent way, as well as an excellent way to test pressure suits and parachutes. Oh God! Not pressure washers. (laughs) No, not pressure pressure cookers. cookers. No, not high pressure situations. (laughs) I want to see how this casserole works up in space. (laughs) That's a Heston Blumenthal recipe, if ever there was one. Yeah. And the first project launched by the Americans was the not especially subtly named Project Manhigh, <laughs> run by one Colonel John Stapp, as opposed to Project Manlow, which was run by Barry. Hey! <laughs> nice. You can also make a cannabis joke of your choice. And Stapp was an absolute nutcase, Tom. I would not have volunteered for any project that this man was running. Stapp was known, even at the time, as quote-unquote the fastest man alive. And... Quote unquote. After Project Man Fast. (laughs) Yes, uh, yes. And quote unquote, the human crash test dummy. After test crash man. uh, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) After test crash fast. (laughs) Man smash. (laughs) So Stapp had run and volunteered to ride the US's rocket sled program. Rocket rocket sled. Brilliant. Yes, <laughs> which fired people on rocket-powered sledges nice. <laughs> down tracks at incredible speed and then slowed them down again at incredible speed to test seatbelts and collision protection for pilots. In one run, Stapp voluntarily went from 0 to 632 miles an hour in five seconds Whoa. <laughs> before stopping to a standstill again in 1.4 seconds. He hit 20G on the way up and 46G on the way down, breaking his wrists and temporarily blinding himself as the force blew every... Just the force... <laughs> his eyeballs blew- to the back of his head. <laughs> yes, blew every single capillary in his eyes <laughs> and filled them with blood. <laughs> He his didn't eye- do this once, Tom. His eye- eyeballs were banging around behind his head. Yes, <laughs> he had to extract them. He had to extract them from his underwear. <laughs> <laughs> he volunteered for thirty of these missions. <laughs> oh dear! To be fair, some good research came out of it. Uh, he's partially responsible for the invention of the three-point seatbelt, <laughs> oh, so that okay. when you crash into a bollard at twelve miles an hour, you can. <laughs> Thank John Stapp. <laughs> but as I say, I would not want to be in any project that he was in charge of, especially one with balloons. <laughs> Unless it was Project Balloon Art. Balloon Art! <laughs> in which case, it was just, yes, making, making a giraffe at incredible speed. Project Daughter's uh, Birthday! <laughs> project Get Clown! Make project, cake! Get myself a job at the TV studio! <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, no one... <laughs> no one was being thrown out of balloons on this Project occasion. Pretty girl. But, <laughs> but the aim of the three flights of Project Manhai was to get as high as possible with the intention of getting themselves as irradiated as possible by cosmic <laughs> rays. So not entirely without risk. <laughs> Any, anything for a tan, eh? 
I've, I've, I got a mission for you boys. I want you to get up there and microwave yourself. <laughs> Me? Don't come down until you've had three minutes, been rested for a minute, stirred gently, and then sent up for three minutes again. <laughs> I want you to come down here looking like a lasagna. <laughs> Bubbling on the edges of your small plastic tray. And you, Sue, you're going to be the first female up there. That's uh, <laughs> Sue Pernoodle over there. <laughs> oh, great. As opposed to last episode's Sue Pergonorea, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the first flight, Man High, Man High 1, reached 29.5 kilometres under the command of Captain Joseph W. Kittinger in June 1957. Unfortunately, someone had fitted the oxygen valve for his capsule backwards, so instead of filling with oxygen, it all drained out. Oh, that uh, one. That old mistake. Yes. Kittinger got as high as he could, quite literally, thanks oxygen deprivation, before dropping down and reaching the ground safely. The third flight didn't Kittinger do much sounds better. like a merging of two words, kitten and cottager. Yes. <laughs> Someone who goes trawling public toilets. It's for kittens. <laughs> looking for kittens, yes. Sounds like the kind of excuse you'd expect from a Conservative MP caught in a, <laughs> caught in a park <laughs> after dark. I was looking for my missing cat. <laughs> <laughs> so the third flight didn't fare much better, but the second flight by Major David G. Simons on August 20th, 1957, reached 31 kilometres, 102,000 feet. But having had a disastrous first flight, that wasn't all from Kittinger. Clearly having loved joining the Mile High Club, with all the thrills of an asphyxiwank, but a view of the earth rather than the inside of your garage, he was completely down for nearly <laughs> killing himself a couple more times through oxygen deprivation. And so he joined the follow-on from Project Man High, Project Excelsior. This was, again, three flights, but this time with parachute jumps, designed to test what would happen if a pilot had to eject at super high altitudes by ejecting a pilot at super high altitude. And they went very, very fucking badly. In the Excelsior the first flight on November 16th, 1959, shortly after he leapt from his balloon at 76,000 feet, Kittinger's parachute wrapped around his neck and he fell unconscious, beginning to spin at 120 RPM. So he entered a flat spin, basically just whirling around and around on the spot whilst falling at four or 500 miles an hour, hitting 20 Gs of rotational force. And uh, firstly, unintentionally setting a new world record for the highest sustained g-force and secondly very much cementing the being unconscious thing <laughs> fortunately uh, a kind of an altitude controlled automatic parachute deployer eventually fired off and it did slow his uh, rotation and his fall and save his life three weeks later just three weeks later he had another Half crack of the united states was covered in vomit <laughs> <laughs> yes i was sick over four states <laughs> <laughs> so uh, three weeks later he had another crack didn't manage to get much higher but it did go off without a hitch from a similar height but nine months later in August 1960 Kittinger went big really big 102,800 feet 31.3 kilometres up that Tom for reference is like free falling from Newcastle to Huddersfield and for our <laughs> American audience it's like falling from Coney Island to the Bronx Zoo or the other way around because Coney Islands to the south. And that's and that's the way you most naturally fall, isn't it? We all fall south. Yes. <laughs> You're being Northern Hemispherist. I am an all, yes. But once again, this jump from an enormous height did not go well. Although there's a pretty awesome photo of him leaping from the capsule. The pressure seal in his right glove failed on the way up and exposed his hands to increasingly, incredibly low pressures and low temperatures. <laughs> so as he hit the stratosphere... 
he lost the use of his right hand as it swelled to twice its normal size and act even Jeremy Beadle couldn't match. <laughs> That's a look like Mickey Mouse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did in the end. He looked like Mickey Mouse going up through the stratosphere. Imagine, where, he, was he wearing a wedding ring at the time? Because that would have hurt. That would have, that would have made a ping. <laughs> So he didn't radio the ground crew in case they called off the mission and kept on rising and rising, his hand getting bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> in all, he ascended to 102,800 feet, around 1,000 feet higher than the Manhigh 2 record, before waiting 12 minutes to hover over the landing zone. You'd think, being 20 miles high, you wouldn't necessarily need to really hover over a landing zone because you could probably sort of just aim for, aim for where you needed to be. <laughs> yes, just, just vaguely aim for North America. <laughs> But no, he waited until he was exactly over the landing zone, and then he jumped. In excruciating pain, and with a hand that was literally about to explode, he leapt into the unknown, free-falling for over four minutes, and hitting Tom in his free-fall 614 miles an hour. Does it feel like that fast, though? Apparently not. No, apparently because you've got no frame of reference... And the air is so incredibly other thin, which is how you're able other to... Other your enormous hand getting smaller. <laughs> yeah, other than your hand slowly shrinking back to its normal size. Right, no, my there's, thumb there's no has way of... gone back to half its size, so I <laughs> so suspect we're at the I following altitude. Finally, finally extract it from my anus. <laughs> but no, apparently there's, there's no way to know how fast you're going. It, it, the Earth is, still seems a very long way away. Um, so it took him an hour and a half to get up and 14 minutes to get down. No, we've all had that problem. Impressive. As we get older. <laughs> don't, don't, we, don't we just? Yes. Project, Project Man Limp. <laughs> Project Big Cock. <laughs> <laughs> Project Semi. <laughs> so, spun like a blender, garroted and with a hand that could single-handedly inspire a Mexican wave or shade a small infant on a hot day... <laughs> Kitten just smashed into the record books for the fastest spin, longest free fall, highest jump and fastest speed of falling in history. And the last two were only broken in 2012 by Felix Baumgartner. Uh, incidentally, Kittinger was one of uh, the uh, key members of the 2012 jump team for, for Baumgartner. So, you know, he carried on jumping. Not literally, he just <laughs> okay. passed on the baton to other people. Rule number one, put your gloves on <laughs> properly, okay? Yes. <laughs> this is a bit of advice, personal experience. Number two, don't garrote yourself with their parachute. Been there, done that, Number, bad idea. Yeah, yeah. Don't be put off by the cosmic rays. They're very talkative. <laughs> They've been up there a long time. <laughs> but whilst Kittinger, with his giant hand, was, was quite lucky, it was an incredible feat of survival, all things considered. There have been a few who weren't so lucky. In November 62, two Russian pilots set off in a balloon to test different variations of pressure suits at high altitude. The first, Yevgeny Andreev, jumped from the capsule at 83,523 feet, or 25.5 kilometres, and free fell 80,000 feet. He jumped at 25.5 kilometres. He free fell 24.5 kilometres. Wow. Before deploying his parachute, which is absolutely fucking insane. He now still very much holds the longest freefall effort record, which must have been, I mean, even slowing down as you get into denser air, that must have been absolutely terrifying. He'd be falling at a hell of a speed to open his chute at a kilometre up, 
for reference, if you or I booked a skydiving experience tomorrow on a like a tandem skydive, which frankly is the romantic gesture from you that I've been waiting for all these years, <laughs> you deploy your parachute. Your instructor would deploy the parachute at twice that height. Wow! So he fell from <laughs> twenty-five kilometers, and essentially he was about fifteen seconds from hitting the ground at that point. Was that saying something about the quality of the Soviet parachutes? It, no, it was saying something about the enormous weight of his balls dragging him towards the earth. <laughs> Oh, that's right. His notoriously large testicles. He was, yes. Oh, uh, unfortunately, yeah. there was an, there was there was a rip in the pressure seal around the gonads. <laughs> they expanded to twice their normal size. <laughs> like being on Mister Hoppy. He's <laughs> <laughs> like raiding us, Spears Hopper. <laughs> Quite literally. Why they're called? Why they called Spears Hoppers? <laughs> yeah. It's when he hit the ground and bounced back up 30 kilometres, just <laughs> waving at the space station. <laughs> Ow, me balls! <laughs> me knuckles! <laughs> Somebody and the next time he I'm... fucking landed was in France. Wee! <laughs> 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 oh, no, I'm about to bounce into that Belgian Congo with me enormous swollen sore knuckles. <laughs> First man to circumnavigate the globe, bouncing on his balls. (laughs) (laughs) 300 miles every bounce. Soviet Geordie. (laughs) It just so happens that um, the part of Russia that (laughs) Yevgeny Andreev was from had a very similar accent to uh, Newcastle upon Tyne. Subtly different for our listeners who are paying attention. Sam's very good at his regional dialects. I certainly, yeah. yes, I am. Russian regional dialects, yeah. <laughs> so whilst Bollock bouncing... <laughs> Barry. Bollock bouncing Andre, Barry. Whilst bo- Bollock bouncing Andrea... <laughs> Barryov. Was, ...was perfectly fine and, and very lucky. His colleague, not so much. The other pilot, Pyotr Dolgov, ascended to 94,000 feet before jumping. Unfortunately, he cracked his visor on the door as he leapt. He literally jumped up, smashed his visor on the door, shattered the glass of his visor and caused him to depressurize rapidly and and die at best within seconds. At worst, boil his innards instantly in the near vacuum of space. The poor bastard. What a way to die. Yeah, always known to be quite clumsy there, wasn't he? He was, yes. He's known as Clumsy Peter, yeah. He was, yes. (laughs) Don't put him up there. Uh, Dolgov, his surname, incidentally, is uh, today shortened to Dol. Dol? So where the origin of the phrase comes from. So yeah, he was um, very much killed, basically scrambled his innards. Not very nice. Just a few years later, in 1966, an American daredevil called Nick Piantanida tried to break the highest jump record in, in three flights. First two flights didn't go so well, so on his last flight, on the way up, his helmet depressurized at just under 60,000 feet. The ground crew saw what was happening and jettisoned the balloon, basically cut the cords between the balloon and the uh, and the capsule. But like Dolgov, he suffered massive sudden depressurization. Because he was at 60,000 feet, he didn't die, but he was comatose for the rest of his life, Ooh. which is pretty grim. Yeah, that's pretty grim. He, uh, he lived, but he never recovered. So it's a bloody dangerous hobby, space skydiving yeah, or stratospheric skydiving. I could have told you that at the start. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't, free, <laughs> it doesn't need a 30-minute lecture. Free-falling to the earth from great height. Yeah. But there we go, Tom. That is a brief history of the incredibly dangerous sport of space skydiving. Wonderful. Wonderful. 
Oh shit, there's a lot of audience feedback today. Aaron made a joke about my homemade jam on the microphone, which sounded a bit odd. From our Patreon episode, which patreon.com slash that was genius. Don't buy it for this episode. It was largely recorded on Tom's laptop microphone, but there was technical errors and Aaron hilariously blamed it on Tom getting chutney, possibly a euphemism for semen on it. And then we have an Aaron number two who messaged us only earlier today. He said, it's quite a long message. It was, uh, hey, Sam and Tom, I found you a few months ago um, working through your episodes on Spotify. Uh, Good uh, good to know. Awesome job. So show, show is super funny. The show is super funny. I spend a lot of time driving for work and this show helps me drive a lot. My head makes my drive a lot more enjoyable. I can't read tonight. And he goes <laughs> on to say, sign. which is interesting, I'm a musician and music teacher in Toledo, Ohio. So I loved the episode you did on composers. Oh. In an episode near the pandemic episode, can't remember which one specifically, Tom references tone poems, but says he doesn't know what they are. I still don't. A tone poem is a piece of music that is meant to illustrate a specific story, novel, painting, etc. Think Also Sprack Zarathustra by Richard Strauss. Oh, which right. is that actually was exactly the one what I was, I was thinking. thinking. <laughs> yeah, it's the first one that came to my mind as well, and it's just it's nice to know that that's a tone poem. A bit too advanced for someone who enjoys Coldplay on the music front, that, but um, <laughs> I'm sure you might understand it, Sam. That's a toneless poem. Eric says dear tom and sam just want to tell you i absolutely love your podcast each new episode is a highlight of my week keep up the fantastic word work we haven't had any hate mail for a long time have we <laughs> we have not <laughs> this has sounded very self-indulgent it is yeah uh, another Aaron. god which Aaron is this Aaron number three no one of the other rounds i've recently thought of two ideas trains railway transportation and africa i've kind of done trains before but i'm happy to do trains again that's a surprise yeah <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've done, do. I've oh, done trains, both in the sense that I've talked about them on this podcast, and I've fucked I've them for shoved fun. them up my ass. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Choo-choo, here it comes. <laughs> Thomas was a very useful butt plug. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's Jerome, who we keep mixing up with Jerome. So Jerome is our French listener, and Jerome sounds like well he's, he's, got, he's got very good written English so he sounds like English is his first language so I'm going to narrow it down to I reckon he's Australian or from the US anyway he sent us a message and obviously enjoys the enjoys the show as well and we also had a message on Facebook from Nancy Ann Taylor who said how am I just discovering this podcast now question mark well Nancy uh, you went onto your podcasting app of choice you searched for that was genius or indeed sexy historians podcast. or indeed Funny yes funniest podcast, podcast handsome podcasters or indeed most well-endowed history podcasters and there we were right at the bottom of the yeah you searched you searched in reverse order and there were we thank you for all your lovely feedback in essence everyone said nice things so thank you aaron 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 jerome nancy and anyone else we've missed thank you all I think that's pretty much it right we should think of a topic for next week shouldn't we and that's gonna be a patron episode isn't it it's a patron episode, so not one from our list. Got to think of something original. Oh, but a lot of those suggestions are from our patrons. I know, but I feel like they paid the money. They should be able to enforce their opinions and desires upon the rest of Joe Public. That's true. We could do security. Security. Okay, oh, we'll go security. It says looking at his burglar alarm. Okay, let's do security for the patrons. Because that could involve like that could be like stocks and shares as well. Securities. It could be bodyguards. It could be. Uh, national defence, lots of lots of fun things. Okay, security for the patrons. What have we got on the list of public suggestions? Let's go for 
disgusting traditions. Disgusting traditions. All right, brilliant. Noting that down. I like that. Disgusting traditions. Or oh, should we just go traditions? Let's go traditions. They can. If we'll try and find something disgusting, but I think we're narrowing it down a bit much there. Okay. Done. Security followed by disgusting traditions. Brilliant. And if you want to hear that next episode all about security, then you can join the Order of the Bathtub. That is our patron exclusive offer, where for just three, four, or five pounds a month or equivalent in your local currency, you get an exclusive episode every other week. And doodles from Tom. Can't say fairer than that. That's Pete. Hello, that's Tom. That's patreon.com slash that was genius. In the meantime, so whoa, 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 you can also join our Facebook group, That Was Genius, a funny history podcast group on Facebook. And not to be confused with That Was Genius, a funny history podcast, uh, which is the page. <laughs> we're twice, we're twice on Facebook. Uh, then, yeah, go and check us out for memes, laughs, and to meet other members of our glorious little historical community. In the meantime, say goodbye, Tom. Bye-bye. And it's bye-bye from me. Bye-bye.